Good morning again, everyone. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit unique today, I think. At least I think it is. Uh, just I got reading. We're at the beginning of the year. Start reading through the Bible again at the beginning of the year. And uh, I didn't get very far into it before I got captivated by some stuff that most people think is pretty boring. How many of you use the genealogies to help you go to sleep at night? <clears throat> We're going to look at the genealogies this morning and ask the question, what do the genealogies teach us? What do the genealogies teach us about people? Before we do, would you pray with me, please? Thank you, Lord, for this day. And as we go into the Word, some of it's going to be familiar, some of it may be a little bit unfamiliar, but all of it is inspired. All of it is from you uh, so that we might know you and know more about your plan and know how to live. So give us understanding and attentive hearts today as we work through the material, knowing that whatever you've said a long time ago is still relevant and vital for living a faithful Christian life today, even in 2015. We pray it now in Jesus' name, amen. Now this week is an interesting week for us in our country because we have the convergence of two distinct times of remembering and somewhat celebrating First, this week is the Sanctity of Life Week, and today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, secondly, we're in the month that's called the African American History Month, and tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I'm not asking for anybody's opinion on either one of those things. I'm simply acknowledging that they come together in our culture and on the calendar starting today and going throughout this week. And there's been some events. Uh, we've had Millions upon millions of lives that have been lost since uh, abortion was legalized. But don't think that it just started back in 1972. This has been a problem all the way back in our country since the early 1930s. It was one of the things that was being advanced by social progressives as a way of coming out of the depression. If you could just eliminate the poor people, you wouldn't have the depression anymore. And there were a lot of people that were looking at the Soviet Union and their communistic system and saying, that's the way we ought to do it. Because the Soviet Union had embraced the whole process of abortion to try to manage money, try to manage their economy and, and social engineering. And there was a lot of people in America that were articulating that point of view in 1930. But this whole disregard... Uh, of life and an approach to managing life, if I can use that word in, in, a, in a very broad way, goes all the way back to early in Scripture. One of the things that I was captivated by this week in reading was the differences in lifespans. And as I began to look at the, the lifespans and things like that, my study went broader and I began to ask the question, how is God, through Moses, using these family trees to communicate what's going on here i don't know about you uh, some people love family tree kind of stuff uh, i just want to tell you if you go to ancestry.com you might want to know that you're supporting the mormon church when you do that one okay but i know there's a lot of people that like to do family trees i'm kind of interested in it um, when i look at my mom's side of the family through my maternal grandmother things get a little bit murky it's kind of ha- hard to follow uh, the adoptions and the last names and things like that. But to me, it's, it's very interesting. The Bible gives us some significant family trees in the beginning. And the question this morning is, 
What are they trying to teach us? Let's ask this first question. What is true about people? If you have your Bible, I want you to look in the very first chapter. First chapter, Genesis chapter 1. First question we want to answer this morning is, what is true about people in general? Well, the scriptures begin this way. It's one of the first or second verses that children learn in Sunday school. It is a declarative verse. It is a verse that states a truth that everybody has to be confronted with in the very beginning of their understanding. And that is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first verse in the Bible. It doesn't seek to prove God. It assumes that God exists. Okay? The statement is, God created. Uh, his name is Elohim, the all-powerful one. And God is able to create. And you compare Scripture with Scripture, and you find out that God created everything without having any pre-existing material to work with. He simply created it out of his own intellect and out of his own power. What a tremendous artisan God is. We learn that on the sixth day, God's final acts of creation involved the creation of a man and then the creation of a woman. And he makes this statement about both of us, men and women, in verse 26. What's true about people? Well, the truth is, each person is made in the image of God. Notice God's statement. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So there's something about man that represents God on this planet. Because we are made in His image and in His likeness. It's not saying that we are deity, but it is saying that we are made to represent him. And that representation on the planet involved ruling. We could say accurately that Adam and Eve were God's vice regents on the planet to oversee creation. Their job was to represent God to all of the created order. They were to supervise and run the planet. They were their vice regents. Bible scholars, as they study ancient history, ancient Near Eastern history, uh, determined that uh, one of the things that conquering men would do is they would subjugate lands. And we'll talk about that later. Moses is writing this down under the direction of God for the children of Israel. Genesis through Deuteronomy is called the law that is given to Israel after they have been taken out of Egypt. So the original audience is Israel. And the original audience, Israel, is getting God's account of what happened way back in the beginning in ancient history. So the audience is Israel. So as God begins to talk to Israel about these things, he says to Israel, listen, in the beginning I created everything and I put my special stamp on men and women. They were my image bearers. Now as Israel would hear this term about being made in the image of God, their mind might go to an ancient practice that that conquering men would use. Most conquering men would stay in their home country. But they would create statues and they would put them in the lands that they created so that when people would look at them, they would be reminded that they are under the subjugation of that man. That statue was made in the image, in the likeness of that conquering general, that conquering emperor. Perhaps then, as Israel's listening to this, they realize that men and women made in the image of God were made in His image and His likeness to represent 
to all of creation and remind all of creation that they were under the control of an omniscient and all-powerful God. One of the things that comes out about this is the fact that as his representative rulers, verse 26 says, they are to rule over the sea, over the fish, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You understand that the idea of ruling and and having control and representing God is paramount in these three verses, verses 26 to 28, which is what makes Genesis chapter 3 so very interesting because Adam and Eve were to be ruling over the serpent. And yet they are, she is deceived by the serpent. Okay, very interesting theology. One of the things that is true about Adam and Eve is as they are made in the image of God, they reflect glory back to him as they function the way he created them as personal beings. In other words, their existence and the way that they went about their existence would glorify God. The use of their intellect, the use of their will, the use of their emotions. They were created as personal beings. They are not a force. They are not an energy field. They were real historical beings They had intellect, emotions, and a will. And they would glorify God by doing their job of managing and ruling over the planet as God's representative. Now, we learn a very sad thing in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve sinned. And even though they sinned, the image of God is still retained in each person today. Each person created is made in the image of God Genesis 9 affirms that. Even, even sinful people conceived are made in the image of God. That's why God instituted the, the practice of, of governments engaging in capital punishment. Because when you kill somebody else, you have murdered and marred the image of God. And God says you forfeit your right to live when you do that. Interestingly, even though the image of God has been marred and diminished. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, that the image of God is being renewed in us, in Christ. When a person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, there is a renewal process that begins where we are being renewed in the image of the one who created us. That means that as we grow in Jesus Christ, our abilities to think, our abilities to make decisions, our abilities to live with biblical emotions, become more and more like Christ as we grow in Him. That is the renewal of His image in us. Well, here's the thing this morning. If all people are image bearers, what are the implications for us as a church family and maybe how we live in society? Well, here's the first one. Each person, regardless of gender, is an image bearer. He says in verse 27, male and female. Male and female. It's not just the men who are image bearers and and ladies are second class citizens. And we see that in other cultures. Uh, We see one sex preferred over another for a variety of reasons. We do know that in some countries there are far more uh, men, like in China, than there are women. 
because of their policy of a one-child family. And most families want boys in order to be able to provide for the elderly when they're older, so they would have uh, selective abortions to eliminate women. The text in Genesis 1 affirms this. On the sixth day of creation, God made Adam, and then he took a rib out of Adam's side, and he fashioned a woman, and Adam said, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And God says, they are both equal in my eyes. They are equal in value. They both are image bearers. It also means that when a child is born with a disability or a handicap or has educational challenges, that doesn't mean that they're less human than others that don't struggle as much. All children, all people are image bearers. The preborn child, the newly conceived infant that you may or may not know that you're carrying this morning if you are of that age, that, that is an image bearer. Those frozen embryos that are waiting in different places around the world, waiting to be implanted, those are image bearers. Here's another implication. The, the text in verse 27 says, male and female, he created them. Male and female reminds us of two genders. It also reminds us of God's plan for marriage and family is only ever one man and one woman. Okay? This runs contrary to our cultural push for growing acceptance and approval of confusion such as transgender community issues and same-sex marriage and families. I want you to understand that God set things up in the very beginning and, and no amount of pushing for cultural acceptance of, of changing and crossing over of, of all of the, the different things that people do to try to express their own self-autonomy and all, to try to, to come to self-acceptance and some kind of peace with inside. There's, there's so many different reasons sometimes as to why people do what they do. But understand this, God in His infinite wisdom, He has not made a mistake and created male and female. He didn't make a mistake. And, and other variations of that or other struggles are a result of living in a sin-cursed world. And, and Romans 1 says it's the result of saying no to God. You do understand that it's wrong for us to say, if America keeps going this way, it's going to be under the judgment of God. It's right for you and me to understand we're going this way because we are under the judgment of God. That's a sad thing, but the reality is Romans 1.20 says that when you repress the knowledge of God, when you won't acknowledge Him and worship Him as the Creator and the Lord and the Savior, He will give you over to the depravity of your mind. Now, as you see this being worked out in our culture, it's not that we are going to be judged by God, it's that we are being judged by God. The experimentation and the push to accept all of these different behaviors is the fact that we are under judgment. That's what Romans 1 says. Here's another implication this morning. When God gets done creating, He says, male and female, He created them. Verse 27 says, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. 
male and female, he created them. You know, one of the things that we, we see here in the passage is that the name for man and woman together as given by God is man. Now, that's not a sexist thing, and that's not a derogatory thing. That's not putting down women. It's just when you look at humanity, when God names humanity, he calls them man. And it's kind of important to note that because it's, it needs to be understood that in our current culture, when, when you use man in a collective sense, sometimes we're slipping into such political correctness that we always have to talk about humankind. I have to tell you that this was funny to me, and I'm just going to kind of let you know a little secret in my life, all right? I grew up playing sports, as a lot of you have, a lot of the guys especially, and a lot of our ladies were athletes as well. But, you know, in basketball, when you're playing basketball, you have to play offense and you have to play defense. And when you play defense, often the question is, is who's your man? Especially if you're playing man-to-man. Who do you have? Who's your man? Well, I tend to say that when I'm watching a ladies' game as well, and that really is not accurate. But it really cracked me up when I had somebody, I heard somebody say recently, who's your person? I'm like, huh? Who's your person? You know, that's, that was generic for, you, you know, you don't want to say, who's your woman? That's weird too. It just didn't come out right. Who's your person? I say, who's your man? We're not trying to be offensive if we used man in a collective sense. I just want you to know that God uses the word man in a collective sense. It's his word choice. It's inspired. It emphasizes the order of creation, and it also places the responsibility on the man for leadership within the family structure. Here's one other implication of this first statement about people being made in the image of God. This is kind of important based on the culture we live in. Only man is an image bearer, not animals. Man is over all creation, and therefore it is important to remember that though man is a created being, he is not an animal. Humanistic evolution teaches that we have evolved from animals. That is part of the problem with theistic evolution. In other words, people who say they believe the Bible but believe that God used evolution to bring about the created order. Man is not an animal. Psalm 8 says we're a little lower than the angels, but we are above all of the other created order. Man is not an animal. Man is a person. He is made in the image of God. As we find out in Genesis 9, when you eat meat, you have not committed murder. If you eat meat, you are not a murderer. So dig in after lunch and go get a filet mignon and do it with a clear conscience, okay? When you eat meat, you've done something that God has provided for after the flood. Domesticated animals are pets. They are not people. Just think on that, okay? As you share your bed with your cat, okay? They're not people. They're pets. Here's the fifth implication. Why do we need to detest abortion and racism? Those two things converge this week. Why do we need to be opposed to abortion and do what we can to minister to people who might be going in that direction or have been touched by it? And why do we need to love them and reach out to them and, and help them find grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do we need to detest racism and how it looks at other people? Because 
of the truth of the image of God. It's called in Latin, the imago dei. Every human being is an image bearer. That puts every human being on equal footing. Okay? As you begin to study through the scriptures, what is true about people is that people are image bearers. Well, after the beginning story, the story of creation, we realize there's the deadly day when Adam and Eve sin and that brings death and separation from God. We see that in the first genealogy. Adam lives 960 years and he dies. And his son Seth lives and he dies and everybody lives and they die except for Enoch. He was not for God took him. He walked with God, but he never tasted death. We know in Genesis chapter 6 that things got so bad that evil was just rampant on the earth and the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually that God judged the planet through the flood, the great worldwide flood. And in Genesis 6, it seems like there's evil everywhere. But yet God gives grace to Noah and his family. And so after the flood story... We see God using Noah's three boys to help start all over in repopulating the earth. And those three sons are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Some people are really good at understanding family trees and relationships. And what we're going to do as we look at Genesis chapter 9 through 11, we're going to see that God gives us the family tree of Noah. And we're going to see what these genealogies teach us. So here's the first point this morning. All people are image bearers. Here's the second point. What are the genealogies going to teach us? All people are from one race. Genesis chapter 5, we have the story of Adam and how his family and his lineage gets all the way to Noah. But everything began with Adam. Now the human race is wiped out except for Noah and Mrs. Noah and his three sons and their wives. God begins the population process with eight people. There's this uh, repeated refrain in Adam's day, and he died, and he died, and he died. But after the flood, we see God working with Noah and his three boys. Please look at chapter 9, verse 19. Let's pick up this one verse. Verse 18 actually says, Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, And Ham and Japheth, Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. Notice the next phrase. And from these three, the whole earth was populated. The world's population. Now, Israel is the first recipient of this book. So they are learning where all of the people of the earth came from. And now we are too. And one of the things that it reminds us is that God populated the entire planet and continues to populate the entire planet with or from the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That helps us to understand something that's very important biologically and theologically. There is only one race. It is the human race. All people came from Adam and all people therefore came from Noah And either you're a descendant of Ham this morning or Japheth or Shem. Those are your three choices. Who's your grandpa? Probably mine's Japheth. He settled Europe. Okay? Most of you are European. Probably Japheth is your grandfather, however time's removed as well. All right? 
If you're Jewish, if you're Semitic today, if you're Middle Eastern, you're probably from Shem. All right? There's only one human race. Genesis 10 gives us info on how the world's people and nations could be understood by Israel. Take a look at chapter 10 with me. Genesis 10 helps us to know where the peoples in in Israel's day came from. Genesis 10, verse 1. Now, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 2. The sons of Japheth are Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. Now, some of those names come back up later on in biblical prophecy, but notice verse 5. From these coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now, we haven't heard anything about languages yet. We haven't heard anything about nations. We haven't heard anything about families. This is an example of foreshadowing. It's the example of the writer letting you know that something is going to come. Look at verse 6. These are the sons of Ham. Look at verse 15. The descendants of Ham, Canaan, his son, became the father of Sidon, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And I'm so glad none of you used ites to name your sons, okay? But all of these nations would be familiar to Israel. We know who these people are. These people live in the Canaan region. So they came from Canaan. They came from Ham, the son of Noah. Now notice verse 19, the territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar and as far as Gaza and as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim and as far as Lasha, these are the sons of Ham, notice, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands and by their nations. So you've got Japheth and you've got Ham and now you have Shem, verse 21. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Abra and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. Notice uh, the list here. A lot of different guys. You know, if I, if I say them, nobody's going to really know if I get them right or not. Here we go. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpachshad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hul and Gether and Mash. And Arpachshad became the father of Shelah. And Shelah became the father of Eber. Now notice this next verse. It's really interesting. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. You know, this can't possibly refer to the flood because the flood has already happened. The flood happened during the days of Noah. This has to be some other event that the writer is talking about. Come on down to uh, verse 31. These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Now here's what I want you to notice. Look at chapter 11 with me for a second. Because in chapter 11, the writer gives us the family genealogy of Shem all over again. He gives Shem twice, and there's an interesting reason why he does it. But notice some things. I want you to know that when Noah lived on this earth, he lived for 950 years. 
Anybody here volunteering for that? 950 years. But his son lived to 600 years, which means that Shem had a lifespan that was only two-thirds the length of his daddy. Noah happens to be part of the race of of humans before the flood, and, and there's something different about living on the planet apparently after the flood because it cuts Shem's lifespan by a third compared to his dad. Well, there's some other guys in here. You read the same guys, some of those interesting names like Arpachshad. I only can say that one more time before I really butcher it, so I'm done, okay? And then there's this guy, Shelah, who's the father of Aber. And Aber, verse 16 of chapter 11, Aber lives 34 years and becomes the father of Peleg. Aber lives 430 years, and after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. I want you to notice now that all of a sudden, the lifespan on the planet has dropped by another third. Shem lived 600 years, and Aber, why, he only lives 464 years, and he dies before his daddy, Shem. Or excuse me, yeah, he dies before his, his father, Shem, or his, his ancestor, I should say. He dies before his ancestor Shem. Shem is still going. Now notice verse verse 18. Peleg lived 30 years, became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru. And he had other sons and daughters. So now you go like this. Noah lived 950 years. You can kind of see it on the screen right here. 950 years. Shem lives 150 years after his dad. Arpachshad, Shelah, they die before Shem. Aber lives longer than his dad by a little bit. But then Peleg and Ru and Sarug and Nahor and Terah, all of them, according to the genealogy, die before Shem ever died. And one of the things that just jumped out at me is as as the story unfolds, as you look at the genealogies, you realize that for whatever reason, the life expectancy on our planet is being cut by a third and by a third and by a third and then in half. What is it? Is there, is there a relation or is there a cause? I don't know. But I do want you to know something is very interesting in this story as you think about it. Maybe it's the decay of the body and the curse. Maybe it is the demands that are placed upon the human body in resettling the earth. But here's what I want you to see. The third thing this morning is that the descendants of Noah's sons become the foundation for the world's ethnic group and nations. Verse or Chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. There's an event that we need to pay attention to. It's called the Tower of Babel. When they came off the ark, God said, I want you to scatter through the earth and fill it. Verse 1, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Notice, everybody talked the same. Everybody used the same language. But notice, secondly, that they did not scatter. They did not obey God the way they were told. They were told to fill the earth and to, and to take it over. 
They did not. They congregated. The families, even as the families grew and became extremely large, the descendants of Shem and Ham and Japheth, they didn't scatter. They stayed together and they moved east until they found a a suitable piece of ground. It was a plain, not mountains. And there, when they got there, in defiance against God, they said, let's make a tower. Let's make a monument to ourselves so that we'll have a great name. Verse 3, they said, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into a heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Yes, yes, that's right. You're supposed to be scattered. Do you understand? The writer is telling us, that the inhabitants of the earth are living in open defiance and rebellion against God. God said, scatter. And they said, let's come together, otherwise we will be scattered. That is rebellion. And so even after the flood, even after all that Shem witnessed, Shem was on the boat with his father Noah. Shem has had an opportunity to impact a lot of generations because remember, before the Tower of Babel, These people are living together. It's in the days of Peleg that the Tower of Babel takes place, right there. So, the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, one, two, three, fourth generation after the flood, people have already forgot the commandment of God. People have already chosen to live in rebellion. The the wonder of the flood, the horror of coming off that boat, of having the entire surface of the earth reconfigured that memory the reality of god's judgment upon sin has already faded they've already forgotten what happened to them the last time they lived in rebellion now they said let's live in rebellion again let's build a tower what's true about all people all people have sinful rebellious hearts And when they are left to their own devices, they will choose to live in rebellion against God. Four generations after the flood, and they are openly defying God and say, let's build a tower. God says, you know, there's only one person that has a great name, and that's me. So God, in his judgment, the text tells us, verse 6, Behold, they are one people, they have the same language, And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And today, one of the things that we see is, and what I want you to understand, it is on the basis of the the historical fact of the Tower of Babel when God comes, and whether it happened instantaneously or over a period of days or weeks, the three families and all of their descendants, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, those those brothers and their descendants, the descendants were separated. 
God gave new languages. That was a judgment. That was a judgment. And so some people couldn't stay in the plain of Shinar anymore. Some people had to scatter. You wonder how you get different cultures. You wonder how you get different ethnicities. You wonder where the different languages come from. It comes from this passage. And so eventually some people have to settle Eastern Asia. Some people will migrate around the planet. They will go to Africa. Some people will come across perhaps the Bering Sea Bridge and settle North America and and push to Central America and South where the climate is more moderate. Most people would choose to live in the perfect regions, not in the and the extreme cold or the extreme hot. One of the things we see, though, within the scattering of the, the peoples and the giving of languages is as people scatter over the planet, as they are able to talk to each other but not really understand other people, that's going to lead to the formation of, of new alphabets. It's going to lead to the formation of new culture because you're living with people that you understand. And so you begin new traditions and you have things that you do in your part of the world that other people don't because they're living differently because they can understand themselves. The Bible tells us that it was at the Tower of Babel that confusion resulted in languages. And I want you to understand that as a result of those languages, you have the formation of what we've looked at in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and now chapter 11. You have the resulting grouping of families and languages and nations. But it's still only one race. That's why as biblical Christians who say we believe in the inspired word of God, we ought to check our vocabulary and check the way we think and understand that we don't believe in the African-American race or the Hispanic race or the Caucasian race. I've gotten to the point when I have to do surveys. I hate those surveys. Mark the race or the blend of the race. And I, Why don't you put human on there? It would solve it. Now, if you want to understand ethnic background, that's different, see? But now we're using precise language. One of the things as biblical Christians that we need to understand is that because God created all of the languages, this is the result of God working out the details of His story on the earth, and therefore there's no inequality in God's eyes. There's no people group that is inferior to another. This idea of inequality, the prejudices that we carry, and we do carry them, the idea of racism, which is in itself a questionable word, is the product of thinking of fallen and sinful man. The differences in our appearances are not to be viewed as making other ethnicities or nations inferior. Because people look different does not mean they're inferior. When you go somewhere else and you're not in your host culture, you are viewed as inferior too. Most of you don't ever realize it because the far fast majority never leave the valley. They would never know what it's like to be prejudiced against or to, to experience it. But if you leave our culture and go somewhere else in the world, you'll realize really quick that we are not all that in a bag of chips. The host culture thinks they're all that in a bag of chips. 
where do these thinkings come from? They come from fallen and sinful man because once you have lost the ability to listen to somebody else talk and you can't understand what they're saying, do you enjoy that or does it make you mad? Listen, if you go into another restaurant and you place your order and all of a sudden that person at the counter turns around and starts talking in another language, do you like that? I mean, right away. And then all of a sudden, if they start laughing, you're thinking, man, that guy's talking about me. He's making fun of my accent. You know, he thinks I ordered wrong. And when you can't understand somebody, that breeds distrust. That breeds fear. That's exactly what happened on the planet. And then, of course, you add in sin. You add in the component of rebellion. And all of a sudden, you have the makings of cultural supremacy and warfare. All of these different kinds of things. When God chose Israel, he made it clear to them it wasn't because they were better than anyone else. It was just because he chose to use them. This morning, one of the things we need to understand, and I have to be done, but you have to understand this. I'm going to finish tonight. I hope you come back tonight, really. Not because I'm a history freak and I, I like it, but because we need to think biblically about how we do ministry. But one of the things that I'm challenging us with this morning is the differences in ethnicities and perhaps the differences between nations. When you know the truth about how that came to be and how languages brought about isolation and would naturally encourage things like fear and distrust, it becomes really, really important to remind ourselves that we need to see each person as an image bearer. We also need to see each person as somebody that Christ died for. And that Jesus Christ didn't just come into this world to die for North American Caucasians. He didn't come into the world to die just for Europeans or anybody of Latin ethnicity. He came to die for the people of the planet. He came to die for all the tribes. He came to die for all the nations. He came to die for all the people. Jesus is going to be a savior of people from every tribe, every kindred, every nation, every tongue. How we see people, that ought to drive what we do in ministry this year. That ought to open up our eyes to opportunities. That ought to open up our hearts to saying, where can we be intentional about making sure that we don't have views about people that would be unbiblical and hold us back from seeing God do great things through us. We'll talk more about some of these things tonight in part two. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God and uh, provide direction. Give us insight to know what to do and how to do it. As we, the vast majority of us, are born and raised and grew up here, North American continent. We still realize that what you said is true applies to us, and that is that people allowed to go off by themselves will choose rebellion and will be lost. And perhaps there's somebody here today that realizes that their life has been lived in, in a defiant way against the God of heaven. And maybe today is the day that that needs to change. Thank you that Christ died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose again from the dead and offers forgiveness 
to any person who would turn from their sin and acknowledge Christ as the Son of God and believe on Him for salvation. And so today, maybe there's somebody here that has never asked Christ to be their Savior. Would you help them to do that this morning so that they, they might be forgiven of their sin and their rebellion and know the fullness of the love of God in their heart? Today is the acceptable day of salvation, and we give you praise and thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen.